Hey, Charlie, how are you today? Very good. Thanks for having me, Ben. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And for folks out there, I, Charlie and I were chatting before the show. We've we've talked a couple of times over the years back before um, I worked on LogRocket. I worked on a project called AppHub, which was like one of the early developer tools in the React Native space for updating React Native apps in production. And Charlie was really helpful back then as we were getting started. But you know, today Expo has grown into you know a pretty incredible platform for React Native developers. And so, Charlie, maybe you could give a quick introduction to what your team is building and you know, how it helps developers build great apps. Yeah. So I think like James and I, a couple of years ago, became really interested in this problem of like, it's really hard to build a mobile application because you're faced with these two problems of like, I got to build iOS and I got to build Android. And so do I need two teams to even build something, especially if you're building something where you need a lot of people on it, or you need to let all kinds of customers be on it, which, you know, lots of things need that these days. And so we started looking at pushing the limits of HTML5 and seeing what you could do with that. And I think we uncovered the same conclusions that many other people have that like you just can't get much further than people have already unless you're you know working on the Safari team or the Chrome team or ideally both or something. And so we start playing around with pushing around native views, like using JavaScript to control like native iOS views. And that felt immediately really good. So we started building a system around that. And then React Native came out. And so we said, hey, there's a hundred other things we want to do. So let's just take React Native and build the rest of this experience. And so one way to look at it is like both James and I came from this web world and we were used to being able to build things really, really quickly because web development has gotten quite good over the years in terms of enabling people to build like very usable software very quickly. And so like one of the goals we have for Expo is that it should be easier to make an Expo app than it is to make a website. I think we're not quite there yet, but we want to you know, first get at least to as easy and then you know, go even past that. What you can build with Expo is you can write one code base in like JavaScript or TypeScript, and then we give you this native feeling iOS app, native Android app. And then we also, like about a year ago, introduced like Expo Web, which lets you like basically get a website as well. And so any platform where your users or customers are, we want to let you write this one code base that works everywhere. And of course, you can customize the individual platforms so that it feels right on each one, but the bulk of the work can all just be shared. So you can sort of think of it as like unity for applications. So I'm curious to learn more, like specifically some of those tools around React Native, like what are some of the difficulties that developers traditionally had when building a cross-platform app? And like, what are some of the specific tools that your team is building to streamline those parts of the process? There's kind of two parts of that. One is kind of like, this set of tools we run on your computer and some libraries that we include for things that the biggest piece of that is we have like a standard library for react native kind of so we give you access to camera push notifications login with google facebook stuff like that you know recording audio recording video making the phone vibrate using the accelerometer the gyroscope kind of every piece of hardware on the phone pretty much and every kind of common task you might want to do, like embedding a map or things you might want to show that are typically native. And that covers probably like 80% of the things people want to do in their apps. And like a lot of people can just use that standard library to write almost everything they need for most apps. We also built a set of tools around that. The most important of which is maybe this thing called the Expo Go client, which is an app you can get from the App Store. That kind of lets you build an Expo app the way that you might build a website, where you can think of the Expo Go client sort of the way that you know you might use a web browser for development, where you kind of just point it at a URL 
and then you can connect to that URL and see it live as things change. So that means you can start getting started doing development without having to plug in your phone to your computer, without having to download Xcode, without having to download Android Studio, without having to make those up to date. We even built like a text editor in the browser, sort of like a JS filler or a code pen. So you actually can do without even downloading anything to your computer. You can just start getting started experimenting with stuff. So that's really popular with students and things like that. So one half of what we offer is the sort of suite of open source free tools that you run on your computer and on your phone to do development stuff. And it makes sort of the process of doing React Native development a lot easier. The other half of what we do is we basically run a set of services in the cloud that complement those tools. And this kind of came out of the early days. We just had this free open source project and we were just trying to get people to use it. And we started to get people to use it and they would say, hey, this is awesome. Like, I found Xcode such an annoying thing to deal with. I didn't like doing these builds. I struggled to figure out what a provisioning profile was. My certificates are wrong. You know, all those other things are super annoying. All of a sudden, I'm using Expo and I've I'm just focusing on writing the code that's relevant to my specific application. And Expo is sort of magically taking care of the rest of stuff. And I have an app that I'm really happy with now. What do I do next? Like I want to put it in the app store. And then we would sort of say, oh, okay, here's a document that's two pages long and has 11 steps. And so download Xcode and Android Studio, do this, like get these credentials in place, blah, blah, blah. And then at the end of this process, you'll be able to submit to the app store. And that didn't feel great because it was kind of like, for our users, it felt like, oh, you've shielded me from all this complexity all the way through this marathon. And then 10 feet from the finish line, you're telling me to deal with all of this stuff that you've shielded me from the entire time. And I'm totally unprepared for it and don't want to deal with it. And so like a lot of the magic is a lot. And so we sort of said, hey, that's you know totally reasonable. I mean, they didn't literally say that to us, but from watching <laughs> them, that was what we took away. And so we just realized what we needed to do was just kind of help people with that part of the problem too. So we, we built a cloud build service. And so you can basically... If you need a, a binary either to put in test flight or submit to the App Store or the Google Play Store, or even just an APK that you can send around to testers or something like that, you can basically run one command from the command line or activate it some other way. All your code will get sent to Expo servers and we'll do a build in the cloud for you and we'll send it back. So that was kind of the first major service that we built. And then we also, around the same time, realized people were having a lot of trouble setting up push notifications. It was kind of one of these things that's like not hard at all and like anybody can do it. But even if you're the smartest person in the world, it would often take you like a day of like reading Stack Overflow things or like trying stuff and then like rebuilding, reloading or whatever, and kind of bang your head against the wall for somewhere between two hours and 12 hours, and then finally making a breakthrough. And conceptually, it's not that hard. It's like, I just want to send push notifications to this app that I'm developing. And we realized like, this is something that we can just make a lot easier for people. And also it's something that like people would have to set up twice in pretty different ways for iOS and then Android. And so we just set up a push notification service that could set up in you know, 30 seconds or five minutes at the most. And you didn't have to worry about whether a particular user was on Android or iOS. You just send a push notification to us and we'll route it to the appropriate to Apple or Google servers or whatever. And so that just made life a lot easier for people as well. And so a big focus of this year for us is like making professional grade versions of these services. So we just announced on our blog a few weeks ago uh, this new thing we're calling EAS, which stands for Expo Application Services, that are basically going to be like, if you're running a, a real app in production that is like your livelihood or something you care about, these are kind of built for best in the world 
type thing. So we're, we're having a new version of our build service that's much more powerful. It'll let you include any native code that you write or that you know you get from a third-party library. And that'll just let you build basically anything you could build with React Native. You'll be able to build using this new EAS build service. It also includes a submission service that helps people submit to the App Store, which is another thing that's like not hard, but just kind of annoying. And so we can just sort of speed up your life. But then the other thing that's really a big deal is what we call our Expo Update service that's really similar to what you were working on at AppUp. And that basically like lets people change the JavaScript or TypeScript of the app they've written and then tell us about it. And then we'll use our CDN to push out a new version of the code to all the users. So you can kind of deploy your app the way you would a website. You could deploy a hundred times a day and make changes. I mean, if you change the binary, you'd need to resubmit for review to Apple and Google and things like that. If you made significant product changes, they would want you to do that. And you don't have to use this, et cetera, et cetera. But um, a lot of people really, really love this because it just enables them to have a great workflow. A lot of very interesting things, both that you've already built and stuff on the roadmap. I want to dig in a bit, you know, first to the concept of kind of the standard library that you were talking about that you've built for React Native. And maybe just briefly, for folks who are not familiar with the architecture of React Native, how it involves both writing JavaScript code and then sometimes interacting with native code and maybe more broadly, like just how React Native works in terms of having JavaScript that you write control native modules and native views. Could you just give us like a quick overview? Yeah. I mean, I think that overview was like pretty reasonable. And the one thing that React Native lets you do is write JavaScript to do a lot of stuff or TypeScript. But sometimes if you want native functionality, you have to write a native module. And the core of React Native is pretty thin, sort of by design. It's become more thin over time because the people who maintain React Native, like it, it helps them just focus on that. But there's a lot of basic things that almost everybody wants to do that we felt like if we can make sure that people have a good experience, that'll be really, really helpful and useful to people. In the same way that like you could take a language like Python or JavaScript or something like that. And if it only had the sort of the, the core essence of the language, like variables and, plus, and for loops, right, and, yeah, then stuff like that. You could, yeah. do, you could do some things, but then you'd find yourself, oh, I want to print out something to the command line or something like that. And it's like, oh, there's no way to do that. And so you have to sort of install some native components. And so that's kind of a little bit how React Native feels. And so we felt like we need to provide the standard library and pretty much everything in the Expo standard library, there were other ways to do it, or there, there are other ways that people are working on now. But the advantage of Expo, I think, is like we make sure all these things work together and are kind of well-tested together, and they kind of use each other. So like if you are doing you know, video recording stuff, it lines up with the camera module pretty well. And if you capture an image and you want to save it to the file system, the file system access module is what we use. And so it's sort of familiar. And when you're building a standard library, you often end up with like a lot of intertwined dependencies. It actually kind of makes sense to bite it all off as like one big chunk rather than like having separate siloed projects that don't evolve together necessarily. And one thing that is a challenge, I think there's a, a lot of cases where there would be a cool camera library or something like that that somebody wrote for a project that they did. And then they don't upgrade the version of React Native they use or they abandon the project. Sort of if you're searching on GitHub for these native modules, it can be a little bit of a minefield of like finding a lot of things that are unmaintained or outright incompatible with the version of React Native they're using, or you, know, you might want to use two modules that are native and they might not be compatible with each other for one reason or another. And it's not easy to tell that in advance. A lot of things go away when you have this sort of monolithic complete set of stuff. With these modules like camera or push or file system, like do you abstract away the differences between Android and iOS and how those yeah. underlying APIs are implemented? Our philosophy there is basically like, I think a lot of the art of what we do 
at least in this area of stuff, is basically like figuring out a common API that's like feels right to a developer and is elegant and like lets you express the behavior that you want in your head for the user succinctly and clearly and have it work on both platforms. But then we also try to let you access like the deep functionality or the platform specific functionality. So if there's something that's only available on iOS or only available on Android or something like that, that we can like let you take advantage of that without having Expo to be the sort of like lowest common denominator where like you can only write so-so apps because right. the only stuff that works works everywhere. So just trying to like give you the power of both and balance those things is pretty important to us. I imagine you talk to a ton of developers out there at big companies building React Native apps. Like, what do you see in terms of best practices when it comes to architecting, especially like the, the view layer of their application? Like, are they able to share a lot of application code between iOS and Android and just have different view layers? Or do you see kind of a fork deeper down the stack in terms of how they're architecting their front ends? Yeah. So if you look at the React Native website, I think that they have this slogan that comes from when they announced it that says something like, learn once, write anywhere. And I think that even though Expo is built on React Native, I think there's a difference in philosophy where the way I think about things is like, I don't want to like learn once and write anywhere. I want to like write it once and have it work everywhere. I think sometimes people, when they hear that, they're like, oh, that doesn't work. Like that was the promise of Java in the 90s and it just didn't work (laughs) out. But that's the wrong thing to look at. Like, I think the most successful like software creation distribution platform for users of our lifetime is the web and the web browser. And like, if I write a website, I don't write a similar website for people who have Macs and one who have Windows computers and then one who have Linux machines. Or like, I write one website and it works everywhere. And I think that that's extremely powerful to not have to worry about that stuff. And so, if you think about like what devices are these days. You know, I have an Android phone and an iPhone in front of me and they're both about the same size. They both have like black touch screens. And so like when I'm in an application, I don't really want a different experience on Android and a different experience on iPhone. I want the same app. And I think that like the idea that these apps should be different is like mostly gone away at this point. Like if you look at seven, eight years ago, apps like Dropbox and Slack that if you, if you download the Android app and put it side by side with a, the iPhone app, you would be like, these are really different apps. Like the, you know, I tap here on the Android one, I tap here on the iPhone one. And now this flow is completely different, et cetera. And for a whole bunch of reasons, like nobody really does that anymore. So if you look at anything modern, like Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, they're all like basically exactly the same app on both. And I actually would take that one step further where I think almost everybody now does the same thing also with their mobile web product as well. So like if you go to the like Instagram mobile website, you probably have to look at it for 30 seconds before you could tell the difference between the mobile website and like the sort of native iOS app or the native Android app or something like that. And it makes sense. It's the same form factor. It's the same screen. It's the same touch input or whatever. Like you, you don't really want a different product. There might be a few things that are a little bit different because, you know, maybe the way that routing works or URLs are exposed or, you know, some of the browser Chrome interacts or whatever changes some of the details around the edge of your product, but mostly you want the same product everywhere. And so we want to make it so that you write one code base and maybe you have a couple of if statements or specific things where you say, oh, customize this for Android or iOS for some design reason around the edge. But like mostly 95 plus percent of your stuff. And in a lot of cases, literally hundred percent of your code is just the same across everything. You know, it's interesting, like thinking about that. And if that is the future of like developers build one app it's kind of the same on all platforms. 
I wonder with this, you, you were talking about Expo Go before, which is kind of like a web browser. Here is a shell on your phone where it can interpret arbitrary JavaScript and display something to the user and interact with native camera or other things, much like a web browser that you know JavaScript does have APIs for interacting with sub-device stuff. Like, Is there a future where developers can build fairly native feeling iOS and Android apps without necessarily having to get users to download them and install them on their device. If they, like if every person in the world had Expo Go on their phone could. Yeah, it's completely technically possible. There's just app store rules that make it hard to release something like that. But we've certainly thought about that and we'd love to build that if we were allowed to. You'd have to do some work to make React Native a bit more backwards compatible. Because one thing that is really powerful about the web is like I can take a modern version of Chrome and open the Space Jam website from 1996 or whenever it came out, and it looks perfect. It works the same as if I had opened you know, IE4 or whatever in 1996 and looked at this. I mean, maybe there's some tiny differences here or there, but things are almost completely backwards compatible with the web. And that is really, really great for letting you look at all these different things. Whereas the way Expo Go works, we jam like the last three to six versions of React Native and our SDK and stuff all into one app and do a bunch of clever engineering tricks to like basically sort of have six browsers in one mashed into the Expo Go client. And one thing that sometimes people run into that we're, we're coming up with ways to make better is like if you were to look at something that was made 18 months ago or two years ago that hasn't been updated, you can't actually look at it with Expo Go without running an upgrade step. And that's a little bit annoying. We work pretty hard to make the upgrade process really easy. And I think we've done a pretty good job of that. But I would love to get more backwards compatibility into React Native. And I think that would be the most important piece of work that would be required to get there. But there's really no technical reason that it couldn't happen otherwise. And I think like it almost inevitably will happen. Like It's just too efficient and too cool and awesome for it not to. I think the question is whether... It happens through something like somebody making a version of something like Expo Go that is able to get everywhere and load things and that's allowed, or whether it happens through web browsers themselves adding this functionality and continuing to get better. And like, there's no technical reason that couldn't happen either, but there's a lot of sort of political legacy engineering reasons. Like, there's a lot of things that would have to fall into place for that to happen, but I'm pretty sure it will. Right. Yeah, I remember when React Native first came out years ago, like Matt and I, Matt is uh, who I worked on both LogRock and AppHub with, we were kind of hypothesizing that potentially Facebook was going to launch, you know, imagine something like Expo Go in the Facebook app where third-party developers could build like, you know, build the next Farmville or, you know, other Facebook apps that run in the Facebook app on their massive install base. But I guess they they never uh, did that quite like that. I'm sure they've thought about it. If you look at in China, like WeChat, I think it's called Weixin yep, exactly. or something. I believe that uses like HTML5 as its rendering technology, but they basically have this sort of like, if you just sort of sketch out what you're describing, it exists in China, but it doesn't exist in America because of probably just because of the, the rules of the people running the uh, mobile app stores. Right. I guess like that's a good question. Like you are allowed to have a web view, like a true web view in an app, right? And load an arbitrary web page, kind of? Or is that uh, sometimes. not kind of true? When you look at App Store rules, like one, you shouldn't necessarily listen to me as an expert because there are no experts except for the people who run these things. They change the rules a lot and they enforce them in different ways. And so it's just really hard to like say anything definitively when you're not in charge. But I would say that like Google seems to mostly be okay with 
most reasonable things as long as you're not being categorically abusive. And Apple is much more restrictive. And they would give you reasons of why they are that way, that some are reasonable. But there's kind of two angles to that. One is like a set of rules that are sort of like, here are these rules that are technical and about engineering and stuff like that. And then here's another set of rules that are much sort of softer and more human and product and things like that. And Mm -hmm. so like a lot of times you'll sort of read like, oh, you can include a web view and that can, you know, read this, or you can run dynamic code that is downloaded from a server, but it, it must be JavaScript that is executed on JavaScript core. And that was one version of the rules a while ago. I, the current ones, I think, let you download any dynamic code as long as it doesn't do certain things. But I know a guy who wrote an app that was just using a lot of web technology and it got rejected because your app seems to mostly be a way for users to play different HTML5 games in a way that looks too much like an app store. So mm. in that case, the rejection wasn't about the technology because you know, you're know you allowed to use web views in your app, but it was about, oh, we don't want this kind of product in our app store. And so I think there's kind of two different ways to look at these things. And over time, I think the way that enforcement has happened has shifted away from like, we don't want you to do this technically to more things that are like, we don't want you to do these things from a product perspective. And that's more of like where the emphasis is these days, although both these sides of the coin still exist. So shifting gears a bit, I feel like over the years and conscious of the fact that I'm kind of observing more from the sidelines in terms of React Native, since I've been mostly on the website the past few years, I feel like the popularity of React Native is kind of waxing and waning. Like it seems like it gets a lot of popularity and then people maybe aren't talking about it as much for a while. And I remember there was kind of that article from Airbnb which was now probably like two years ago, where they said, we went early, we invested in React Native, and then we pulled back and went back to Native. Like, What do you kind of see as the state of React Native in 2021 and moving forward? Like, Would you recommend any company on earth, if you're building an app, you should just use React Native categorically? Or are there times when a company should still decide yeah. to like invest in separate native apps? And how should developers think about like making that choice if they're starting a new app? So I think React Native is getting there and I think it's close. So I think that like for most companies that are starting from scratch, like using Expo and React Native is a very good choice. And like one of the only reasonable choices, like Flutter, I think is pretty reasonable for certain things. You know, obviously if you're building a game, Unity is a great choice and there's other game things. That's kind of a different world. But thinking back to the Airbnb thing you were referencing, I'm not close to that situation at all. I don't know the details, but looking at it from afar, My guess is that the biggest reason that that whole thing didn't work out in the end was that it was kind of like this brownfield app that they talk about where they had an existing iOS app and an existing Android app and ongoing work from an iOS team and an Android team. And they were trying to like put React Native in there and have both of those things work together. And that's a much harder problem, I think, than a greenfield app. Here's one of the reasons why I think a lot of it has to do with data. So if you think about like building an application, if you're using React Native, you might or React, you might use something like Redux, or you might use Recoil or some other thing. And, and you know, other frameworks have their own solutions for this kind of stuff. But at some point, you're you're coming up with some way to kind of like track state on the client, and you basically want there to be one source of truth for that, because otherwise you deal with tons of complexity. And so one challenge of writing this, like this brownfield type app 
is that if you have a bunch of people doing work in like Java or Kotlin and Swift, Objective-C or whatever, then you have another set of people doing work in TypeScript or JavaScript, you are often going to end up with situations where you have like sort of two sources of truth, where there's like one set of people using data structures that are like in Swift world or Kotlin world, and then another set of people that are using data structures that are sort of JavaScript objects. And you can access either one from the other side of the divide, but there's a pretty big cost to going over that bridge. And if you start doing it like a bunch of times, you can run performance issues. And so then you start maybe setting up like a a cache of one kind of data over the other side, and it just becomes a big gnarly mess. I think there are probably ways to handle that well, but those best practices, I think, are sort of still locked up in the secrets of companies that have dealt with this, and they haven't like publicized it enough that they're sort of well-known across the industry. And I do think that this is something that has gotten better in React Native. Like One thing that I know the Facebook team had worked really hard on is this turbo modules thing, which among other things means that you can go synchronously across the React Native bridge instead of having everything be an asynchronous call that you kind of don't have great predictability or control over the timing of and things like that. And so that kind of problem I think is getting better. And I think a focus, I can't speak for them, but my understanding is I think a focus of the React Native open source team at Facebook's work is making this work for all kinds of big apps and big companies and like embedding it in things, which I think was a weakness of React Native before. At Expo, our focus is really these like new apps that start from a greenfield and you can just like write everything in TypeScript or JavaScript. Your source of truth is there. But then if you have one screen that does something really custom, or two screens or three screens or a section of something, you can write native code for that or pull in third-party native code. So a great example of this is Cameo, which is like this pretty popular like celebrity video shout-out platform is an Expo app. You know, Most of the app is written in JavaScript, but then they have some custom stuff around their video player and recorder and stuff like that, and they need to have some native code. And that part they've written native code for. But they don't need their whole team to be able to do that. They just need you know, one or two people who focus on that to be able to do that on that particular screen. And the rest of the stuff can be written in TypeScript and JavaScript and it ends up working pretty great. And you mentioned that the tooling within Expo to basically push updates to your application without going through the App Store process was one of the more important developer tools that you've built. Like, is that something you can still do when you have an app like Cameo, for example, that has written custom native code? Or yeah. how do developers get around those kind of limitations? That's the kind of thing that makes the problem of getting it right fairly complicated and why it makes sense for us to do it because we can focus on like getting it right in a really robust way that's like well-tested and then literally battle-tested across tens of thousands of apps that are in the app stores using it. Because if you were to write some kind of update thing yourself, you might miss an edge case and end up with an incompatible JavaScript deployment with a, you know, a, like a mismatch with a binary code and then the app is crashing all the time and you can't pull an update until you do another push through the App Store review process and go through the App Store update. And so part of what Expo Updates handles is making sure that like users only ever get a JavaScript version of code that is compatible with the binary that they have on their phone. And so if there's a straggler who's not updating their app from the App Store, you know, they're eight months behind or something, they're not going to get the latest version of your JavaScript unless we have some reason to believe that it will work with that binary code. There's also a bunch of complexity around, you know, what if somebody downloads my app and then doesn't have access to the internet the first time they open it? We actually had a company that was making like logging stuff for truckers. 
And so they were really worried about this, where they thought, oh, like, what if this trucker down the zap and then they're 100 miles into the desert and they need to they need to use the app, but they don't have access to the internet. And so whenever you have an Exo app, when we run our build service or, or you do a build locally and make an artifact that you're going to submit to the app store, we take a snapshot of all your JavaScript and all your assets that you're going to bundle this thing, your fonts, your icons, things like that. And those are included in the app binary bundle that gets shipped so that the app will work immediately you know, the first time it's opened. And then the mechanism that we default to as a sort of a policy is downloading in the background so that the next time you open the app, it has a new code. It's kind of like the way if you use Chrome on your computer or Spotify on your computer, if there's an update, it doesn't like immediately happen. It's like the next time you open the app. And that works pretty well in mobile because apps are restarting all the time because the operating system kills them all the time. But we also let you like configure different policies. Like if you wanted your app to work more like a website upon loading, it's always checking in for the latest version. There are some people that would prefer that. And so you you can configure that using Expo updates. In general, there's like a bunch of little sort of corner cases and edge cases in this problem. And we try to handle those all for you in a robust way that feels pretty seamless. And like generally try to encourage people towards this workflow where every time they're making a Git commit and doing a Git push to you know master or release, it's wired up to doing an update to all their users and that they're constantly pushing out their work to their users. Basically the way web developers tend to work, which is yeah. web developers take for granted the ability to update frequently you know, on every commit or however they want their workflow to be. And yeah. the idea of kind of abstracting away the platform difficulties for developers makes a lot of sense. That's kind of a template for how we think about things. Like we want to make it as easy to build an Expo app as it is to build a website and then go beyond that and make it easier. But we're trying to like use a lot of the same principles, a lot of the same techniques, a lot of the same stuff. So if you're coming over from web, it should be more familiar because we just see so many good things about that. It's interesting. You mentioned earlier building web apps with Expo. I'm curious to, to learn a bit more about that. If I heard correctly, like Typically, people think React Native, they think iOS and Android, but what does it look like to use Expo to build a true cross-platform app that also has a, a mobile web component? Yeah, I mean, I think it's still evolving. We still mark our web support as in beta, but there are people that are using it in production with success. A couple of examples off the top of my head, like the Stanford Daily Newspaper has one code base. You often end up needing to do more custom stuff with web right now than you do with like iOS or Android, partly because... It's still like a, a beta platform for us, but partly also because there's stuff like a URL bar and other things like that that are just a little bit different in the browser. And people often are like loading stuff a different way. So the sort of best way to use ExoWeb is probably with Next.js. And we're sort of trying to build ExoWeb to work well with it because we see that people really, really like a lot of things that Next gives them in terms of like SSR, which is really important for SEO and first load performance for a lot of web apps and a lot of ergonomic things as well. A really cool story I heard the other day was a guy I know sent me a message that said, hey, I've been working on the website for this startup I'm now the CTO of. It's called BeatGig, and it's kind of a way to book bands for like your frat party or your birthday party. It's a pretty popular service, and they're making their tech stack a lot more modern, so like that. And so he basically said, I built the whole website using Expo. And we weren't even thinking about our mobile apps yet because, you know, one thing at a time. But then, you know, I just spent one day, I spent a couple of hours and I have a iOS app that's working great and an Android app that's working great because I was able to just take the same code base that I've already been working on and right out of the box, they're working with a couple hours of tweaking. I want to get that down to like zero hours of tweaking so that things just work everywhere. But basically the community, this guy, Fernando Rojo, especially 
is like doing great work to kind of fill in all these gaps so that that sort of magic can go down to basically being like, oh, I just took this one code base and it just works perfectly on web. It works perfectly on Android. It works perfectly on iOS. There's still more work to do, but like great progress is kind of being made. One reason I really believe in that future is a lot of people don't know this, but Twitter.com is actually built with React Native Web, which is sort of originally created by this guy, Nicholas Gallagher, who was working at Twitter at the time. And he works at Facebook now. But he basically like really liked the React Native model, but his job wasn't to build the Twitter mobile apps. It was just to build the new mobile website that he was working on and it ended up working so well that they ended up adopting it for the main Twitter website. And so Twitter is obviously one of the most popular, successful websites in the world. So we definitely believe that like this is a very powerful, good, reasonable technology to use to build any kind of website that you want, pretty much. The fact that that's being proven in production at massive scale really gives us confidence in that direction. And we also just find like, this is just like what people want. Like I had lunch the other day, or it's a while ago now, because it was before COVID, <laughs> with some people who were working on a meal kit startup, you know, kind of like Blue Apron, but for vegans, I think it's called Thistle. And they are basically saying, hey, we are like a food company first. Like we're, we're trying to get fresh vegan meals to people that are healthy and so food and logistics around food is kind of our top priority. And then we're sort of a tech company after that. So we're not not a tech company, but like we only have two developers on our team. We might add a third soon, but we're probably not going to have 15 developers anytime soon. So we thought that we just wouldn't be able to have an app. We just thought what we can do with a couple of developers is make a good website, make it work well on mobile. And then you know people everywhere will be able to access this, even if some of them would rather access it through an app. At least we'll be able to give everybody something and we'll be able to do it easily because the web's pretty easy to build on. So they built their website with React and then one of them discovered Expo on like a weekend, put together a prototype in a day or two and showed the CEO and the CEO was just like, oh, this is awesome. I didn't realize this was possible. How hard would it be to roll forward with this and put it into production? And so then they just sort of said, hey, since this app is really just written in JavaScript and TypeScript and we're already using React for our website, so it feels familiar we can probably just stretch our tiny development team to support this iOS app and the Android app without adding new developers and sharing some code, but like mostly just sharing techniques and, and design patterns and stuff. That's an awesome story, but like it would be even more awesome if they didn't have to deal with these two code bases because really they want to have like one product that's delivered everywhere. And so that kind of thing is what sort of inspired us to like work on Expo Web and treat this as one problem that's not just like, oh, I want to do iOS and Android, but it's really iOS, Android, and web. And, you know, eventually I think desktop and stuff as well. Like why not have a native Mac app and a native Windows app and a native Linux app that comes out of your Expo project? Yeah. And I guess on that note, you know, what do you see over the next few years for, I guess we can start with Expo specifically. And I'm also curious for your thoughts on like where you see React Native as a general platform going, but like for your team's roadmap, like what are you most excited about? Yeah. For us, this new suite of services, I think is really powerful especially EAS build will let you include any native code that you want to include in your project, but have us build it for you in the cloud. And there's so many things that we can build around that in terms of making a really pleasant, easy, simple workflow that also gives you all the power of anything you could do on your own computer. Like a criticism that people used to say about Expo and still sometimes do is kind of like, oh, Expo is really great for like starting out or doing a prototype or things like that. But if, you, if you're getting really serious and you need to do complicated or custom stuff, then 
you probably want to like write React Native yourself and like shouldn't use Expo. And we think we'll flip that around where it'll become like, if you need to do complicated, tricky stuff, you really should use Expo because that will make it so much easier no matter what you're doing. And I expect that like more and more things will be built with React Native. We'll see what happens between React Native and Flutter. I think that React Native feels quite good to me. When I talk to students and things like that, like 10 years ago, students were really excited about taking iOS development courses in college and things like that. And now the students that I've talked to over the last couple of years, they're not really that excited about that. They're excited about machine learning. They're excited about building things, but they don't really want to take the time to like learn all the details of you know memory management and type safety and stuff like that on Swift. They just want to build stuff. And so things like React and Expo are really, really exciting for them because it just lets them do the stuff they want to do much more quickly. Just looking at it from that perspective, I think we'll see this whole generation of people that are much more likely to build things with React Native because they're building things in React and that's what they know. And so they'll find a way to make it work. A really big goal for me for Expo is like the next generation of things that are kind of foundational and all around us. Like I wish Clubhouse was built with Expo. I want the next TikTok to be built with Expo, things like that. And I think there's no reason that that can't happen, except that there's work to be done to make it so easy and get enough people educated and make everything so powerful that it just makes sense to do it that way. And I think we're really close, but there's just like a couple more things that have to happen to get there. Well, Charlie, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great and it's exciting to hear how much React Native and how much Expo has progressed over the past few years. So thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Pod Rocket. Find us at PodRocketPod on Twitter, or you could always email me, even though that's not a popular option. It's Brian at LogRocket. <laughs>